0: The Rural Health Voice, Episode 90, The Moral Economy of Suboxone. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. When does drug diversion mean taking care of your family? China Shears and Joshua Burroway of the University of Virginia. Join me to discuss the moral economics of suboxone trade in Southwest Virginia. Welcome! So glad to have you here today.
1: So glad to be here.
0: Likewise. All right. The two of you recently had an article published in the Journal of American Ethnological Society. I'm going to start with a background question What is ethnography?
1: Josh and I are both anthropologists and as anthropologists, one of our main methods is been traditionally known as ethnography and it's a qualitative research method. So really trying to get a sense of people in their everyday live lives in part by doing interviews, but also by just spending a lot of time hanging out. It's a very slow method of doing research and it involves following people where they are getting to know their families getting to know their communities spending time with them doing whatever it is that they're doing
2: yeah i mean if you imagine like a kind of a sponge left in a sink for a few months just sort of slowly absorbing kind of everything around it that that's as a metaphor for ethnography often does quite a good job which just sort of there to to be with the people we're studying and sort of try our best to absorb what's going on essentially in their in their world.
0: So I don't know a lot of fifth graders say, I want to be an anthropologist when I grow up. Josh, how did you first get interested in this?
2: It's a bit of a funny one. I mean, it was literally near the A's in the list of courses I could take at undergrad. So like there's a bit of serendipity here. Like I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do And in the the UK compared to the US where you have a bit more choice in the liberal arts bubble. In the UK, you kind of have to just like at 17 guess what you're going to like. And I think I just got lucky in the sense that you know, it kind of immediately sort of enlivened me. And I was like, wow, I get to, like, you know, think about how other people live their lives and go about their worlds, which just seemed, you know, really cool and intoxicating. So I kind of just was lucky in that sense, you know, landed in the right place at the right time.
0: What about you, Chyna?
1: I thought I wanted to go into international development work. So I started out as a development studies major at UC Berkeley in 1998. And anthropology, which I did not know what it was, was a required class for that major. So I took it and I just fell in love with the method, the thought that you could learn more about people by spending time with them in open-ended ways. And the sort of process of moving from observation to interpretation to really sort of starting to have some kind of deeper thoughts about what it is to be a human being was really attractive to me. And so I kept taking classes and got really excited about the possibilities that might be there for... Bringing this method to bear on questions that were important to health and to people's well-being, so um, really trying to think about how it could be used in a in a sort of applied way to try to lead to better healthcare programs, better development programs, and other things like that.
0: And the article you wrote is about things going on in Southwest Virginia. How do people from the outside really learn what's going on on the ground?
1: Well, I think that's. I mean, coming back to this ethnographic method, I feel like um, it allows you to be surprised by what you're finding, and it allows people, like the people that um, we've documented in this article, to be our teachers and to teach us about what's important and what matters in their lives, even if those weren't necessarily the questions that we went in with from the start.
2: I, I think that idea of the grounds really important here, right? Like, I think if you're not immediately involved in a situation or a place right like you tend to take kind of more of a well a bird's eye view which often can tend to be you know founded on sort of misplaced images or sort of misplaced ideas on what's actually going on and so by yeah kind of taking that sort of ground up bottom-up approach you do get to see the you know the kind of the particularities and the, and the, the realities of what's actually going on and sort of trying to kind of thread the needle between between you know kind of what we imagine is out there and what's actually there is kind of a big part of what kind of anthropology and the method of ethnography really does it's sort of you know uniquely capable of threading that needle
1: and you know just to say too you know with that sort of talking about what's happening on the ground I think it's important to say that for anthropologists doing ethnography the ground could be a corporate boardroom the ground could be you know, a group of flight attendants, the ground could be a group of scientists working at NASA, that there's not necessarily a hierarchical sense involved in what might be the ground and what might be the top, but rather it's a trying to kind of get close to what it is that you're wanting to understand wherever that happens to be.
2: And just to like follow up on that, I think that's that idea of closeness is like really important. Like the method is built on intimacy of getting close to people, of building trust and building relationships. You kind of can't just sort of drop in you know run an interview for an hour and then leave in that sense you're not going to really get a deeper sense of what's going on you do need to have that that that, that closeness and then build that trust and that and that intimacy it's kind of absolutely fundamental to the, to the work right and, and ultimately what we try and do through the articles we write is we try and capture that intimacy on some level yeah we write you know, academic papers that have a layer of abstraction and interpretation but it's fundamentally grounded in the strength of the relationships you forge with people otherwise they don't disclose the stuff that matters
0: Well, in reading the article, I was amazed at at the level of trust you obviously built to be able to get the level of of details that you did. Uh, The article is titled, Keeping It in the Family, The Moral Economy of Suboxone in Southwest Virginia. In the article, you use the story of a woman named Tripp and her family, some of you whom are suboxone users, to explain how people divert their prescribed suboxone to care for themselves and their loved ones. I think many people would be surprised to learn that suboxone can be diverted. Tell me how and why that happens.
2: Suboxone is a combination of buprenorphine, which is the kind of opioid, um, and naloxone, which essentially creates like a ceiling effect within the drug, the idea that like essentially the naloxone will knock off the opioids from the receptors in your brain. So if you get a kind of risk of going into overdose, you essentially kind of get pulled back from the brink. So the whole idea of it is that it's kind of Kind of quote-unquote kind of safer to use, which is true, it, do, it does limit the risk of overdose in the actual taking of the substance. So it's like a kind of very particular kind of technology, as it were, that's, that's, that's used to limit risk in the in the field of people who use opioids, whether that's from coming off stronger stuff in the past or from you know, using it full stop. Right? So I think it's probably just good to clarify that, I guess. Um, and your second question was around right, kind of like to what extent Suboxone can be diverted? Well, Guess it's kind of like anything, right? At the moment, like you you know, put something in the hands of someone, like you kind of you lose control of it in some sense and it's and it can be essentially kind of moved around a person's, you know, social world in whatever way they ultimately see fit. Like it's these aren't things that are sort of you're forced to take in a clinic, you ultimately kind of take it home. And you know, home is not a bounded space, right? Like it's a place that people gather in and people pass through. And so like, depending on your situation like anything like it can be it can be moved and that's this i think this article is kind of really about the movement of the substance and how that particular kind of movement sort of shapes how people don't just use it but also how they relate to each other right which is why we kind of felt that kind of keeping it in the family as a you know as a as a, as a title is trying to kind of capture sort of like how the substance moved through families but also but ultimately also how those families were embedded in sort of broader context and broader structures
0: So China. why do you think Suboxone gets diverted? Well, I
1: think one of the things that we show in this article is that Suboxone is diverted for many, many, many reasons. Because of the scarcity of providers that are licensed to provide it and able to provide it in this region, in many cases, people can't access it through actual sort of formal clinical relationships unless there's a lot of demand for it um, for people who are seeking to use it for clinical purposes but who can't access it in therapy um, because of the ways that insurance can work in some cases or because many of the providers are Um, Operating on a cash basis. Sometimes people will be given more than what they need, and then with the assumption that that will be sold as a way of paying for the clinical services themselves. And I think the other thing that we see in this piece is that Suboxone is often being diverted as a form of care, as a form of, as we, we write, sort of looking after someone else in the family who might also be in treatment and you know, finds themselves low at the end of the month for various reasons, or somebody who hasn't been able to get into treatment, such as the mother of the main protagonist of this piece, who's not in, in care, because her husband wouldn't want her to be and wouldn't want to know that she's using Suboxone. But the daughter is is looking after her by providing her with Suboxone. And then I think in a situation of real economic precarity and economic scarcity, this becomes a sort of crucial resource for doing things like making rent or buying food for one's children. And so it becomes a a kind of resource that can be moved around for financial purposes. It's
2: really important to to notice, right, that like withdrawal is a horrible thing to go through like it is like an absolute nightmare of a thing to endure and if you care about someone you don't want to see them go through that right especially if you all have a shared understanding of how horrible and nightmarish that thing is and it kind of really puts the moral in in moral economy that we talk about in this paper which is that you you are looking after people in the in the you know in, in the context they're in and meeting them where they are and so like diverting suboxone to prevent like a loved one Going through the horrors of withdrawal is absolutely a moral act. Like it may be from a kind of clinical and legal standpoint, you know, kind of a transgression. But in the context of the family, like you know, leaving someone up, you know, high and dry as it were, and the mercy of that pain is kind of an unbearable thing and an unethical thing to do. Ultimately, for people in that situation, so I think it's really important to to like highlight the tensions, right, for someone who doesn't necessarily kind of live in that kind of world. That this is a fundamentally a moral act of care, even if it's laced with contradictions and problems
0: at the same time. And China, you mentioned that someone in your story was getting suboxone from a source other than their physician because a different family member didn't want them on suboxone. You know, we've talked to several guests on this podcast about the stigma of substance use disorder. Do you also feel that there is a stigma regarding treatment for substance use disorder
1: Absolutely. And I think particularly with regard to medication-assisted treatment or medications for opioid use disorder, the, the acronym has changed several times over the course of this research project. But yeah, no, there absolutely is, as you know, I think for a lot of people, including this particular woman's husband, would see Suboxone like any other opioid. And so I think that's where it gets complicated in terms of the ways that, that these medications are viewed. When are they a drug? When are they a medication? And how do they slide back and forth between those categories? And how are they perceived by different members of a community?
0: And one criticism I've heard of medication-assisted treatment is that you're just trading one drug for another. What would your response to that accusation be?
2: The thing that kind of sort of jumps to my mind in that, in that critique is, well, like, you're making an assumption, right, that they're, they're equal in both sort of type and kind. But if you are living in the kind of the illicit economy, where like where you're sort of sourcing your the things that keep you out of withdrawal are putting you in all kinds of like serious trouble, right? Whether that's like you know using adulterated substances that put you at a higher risk of overdose, or putting yourself in situations where you're more likely to get you know picked up by the police and, and the ripple effects that creates potentially in your own life moving from a kind of illicit to illicit substance, right? You're at the very least entering into a kind of a contract, right? With the, with the clinical sphere, the very least sort of takes you imme- immediately out of the kind of sort of the, 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 worst possibilities that can, that can, that can arrive in that space. And so like, it's, it's not, it's not an equal trade, right? Like the, the dimensions of it are different. The pressures are different. The, the forces that enact upon you are different as well. So, and you've got to bear in mind as well, like depending on, you know, the, when we were you know, doing our research down there, yeah, like there are lots of clinics that provide Suboxone, but not all clinics are equal. And like the best kinds of clinics don't just provide the, you know, the pills. They also provide, at least in, you know, kind of at, the, at their best, you know, other kinds of psychosocial support. So you're enrollment in these programs, you're not just trading one drug for another. You're trying to sort of transition from one kind of life into a different kind of life. And that might entail, you know, sort of more wraparound supportive care from clinical teams. It might, allow you to access other kinds of resources it might sort of take some of the economic pressure off of spending all your money um when you're already really precarious and essentially hard up on you know drugs from essentially kind of street economies so like i think it's uh, a it it can't be viewed as an equal sign right it's it's different
1: if it were just the medication that critique might have some weight but where These medications are being provided in the context of a whole suite of wraparound clinical services and psychological services. Something else is really quite possible, but the medications allow for a kind of stability during a period of time where someone is trying to get their their life back. And so being able to use these medications, but also alongside counseling and other medical services and, and groups and someone who can be really supportive as someone is learning to, to put things back together again. And I think that was one of the things that was really surprising to me in this work was really hearing that same critique of some of the other clinics providing suboxone coming from the clinical directors of the clinic that we were studying and sort of the importance that they placed on the rest of the therapeutic program that was coming alongside these medications.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think something to add to that as well is, I mean, just to sort of hark back to a previous research project that I was you know, part of, I, I did a lot of work with um, substance users in the UK who were homeless, right? And like, there's a sort of perception that like, if you're, you know, quote unquote, a drug addict, right? which is a like seriously morally loaded term that shouldn't be banded around without thinking, the idea is that like, you're just kind of, doing your drugs all day and sort of, you know, lying on a sofa somewhere and, you know, kind of stuck in this sort of lazy static state. But actually like, that's not true. Like it's a full-time job, like scoring, like heroin in particular, like it's, you know, it's a, it's a, you, you spend your entire day just making sure you've got a fix to get by. Like it drives you, right? So you have no time and no space to do anything else, right? That's your like fundamental pursuit. Where at least in a clinical context where you have like some sort of facilitated access to these substances so you can not have to worry right about withdrawal there are possibilities for space and time to open up in your life to think about other things are you not just beyond making sure you don't get sick but you know seeking as china said you know psychological care like reconnecting with family with friends like it's not saying that people do this stuff easily right but it's about trying to create like a little wedge right little you know foot in the door it gives you some space i think there's there's huge value in that for for patients right
0: So let's talk about some of those legality issues. In the article, you make several references to the complication of taking prescribed Suboxone being legal while taking Suboxone you've been given by a family member being illegal, even though the purpose is exactly the same. Why don't people just go to the doctor and get it for themselves?
1: Well, I think that comes back to the question of provider availability. So um, whether providers have taken the necessary steps to um, become Suboxone providers, whether that's something that they wanna do. I think the sort of stigma against working with people living with substance use disorders is there are not just for family members and communities, but perhaps for some clinicians as well. Um, the difficulty of that work I think makes it something that is, is something that maybe some people don't wanna take on. And so whether or not a provider is available in your area, Um, And particularly thinking about sort of questions of rural health, where people often live some good distance away from a major town where a clinic might be available to them is a major issue. And even in this paper, the young woman that's at the center of it, she was driving, you know, hour, two hours away to get to the clinic that she would go to. And um, Josh accompanied her and her partner several times on that journey. And just how difficult that was, the process of just getting gas and making sure that the car's in repair and ready to go and getting there on time was a major hurdle. I think since that time, there's become an array of new sort of telehealth options around medications for opioid use disorder that do try to combine the kind of wraparound clinical services and psychological services and group services with making them more accessible to people and i think that'll be interesting to see how that goes in the coming years
2: i mean just to like add a bit of you know kind of context to that, to that like, i mean, i remember literally like we, we got in the car and so bruce at the time sort of trip's partner had put in like what he thought was exactly the right amount of sort of dollars of gas essentially to get to that place. Right. We were, um, it was, we were talking like it was eight or $9 dollars he thought would sort of get them there. And we got to a particular hill and the way the sort of slant of the hill was, it essentially kind of tipped the gas tank. So that the way the car was essentially kind of on the hill meant that the, the gas wasn't flowing into the, you know, into essentially the engine, which meant that it stalled and suddenly started rolling backwards. And so that we had to actually kind of literally get out of the car and, you know, luckily I was there to literally like help push it up the hill and get it on a camber where you could get the fuel back into the tank just to get there right so this is the level of sort of contingency and precarity people are dealing with even when they have like quote-unquote enough often it's not enough it's like it's so below the borderline that like the idea of you know kind of just getting there and going to clinic and making it part of your everyday routine is sort of laced with insecurity because life is just fundamentally insecure when you are living under those conditions of scarcity where you're always striving for enough but never quite getting there. And that was the sort of, that was business as usual for them. Right. I think that's kind of really important to note that like these choices about, you know, whether you do or don't go and seek, you know, kind of clinical care are always tied up in, well, what can I do today? Like what's actually possible? What resources do I have? Right.
0: That kind of stuff. From the perspective of law enforcement, what's the difference between an individual that has a suboxone pill that was prescribed and someone with a suboxone pill that was given to them by a family member?
1: Whether they've got a prescription with their name on it. And the legal implications being? The legal implications being that you know you could end up with with charges against you, you could end up with fines. And in the case of this particular woman's life, you could also end up with your children being taken away from you as the sort of involvement of child protective services can be triggered by a situation like that. Yeah. So the implications are enormous in, in somebody's life, even if you might happen to be between programs. So let's say you were seeing one physician, you decided you didn't like them, you were going to change to another, you moved areas. Um, you ran out of your prescription, and you were waiting for the next day to go and, and get your next one. You could be caught out in a situation where suddenly something that was a legal medication became an illegal drug.
2: And, and there's like a compound interest aspect to this as well, right? So like a lot of um, people, like trip, is the sort of you know key kind of um, key interlocutor, right? Like if you have a charge for a previous substance use issue, like whether it's methamphetamine or cannabis or whatever, or you know previously illicit suboxone prescription right like that is going to be held against you and that's going to compound any judgment right so even if you're kind of you know supposedly on the straight and narrow as it were and seeking you know clinical treatment within the bounds of compliance and then suddenly you know for whatever reason you kind of you, you miss that because you you know in between treatments as trying to describe like that record you have that's just going to make things worse right so like there's 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 people's history to contend with as well so even if it's you know kind of one slip up in the context of you know the, the, the clinical regimen that you're on that history follows you, it haunts you Right, It's kind of ghostly in that sense.
0: Because of the regulations for Suboxone, many treatment programs are very restrictive. This can be checking patients for ejection marks, making them come back to the clinic more often instead of giving them a larger quantity of pills at a time. Do you feel the restrictions are beneficial?
2: I'm not sure how comfortable I feel sort of making a a judgment of whether they're sort of beneficial or not, but like going back to the sort of the intimacy and the And the sort of the connection you forge with people to to ultimately sort of you know capture the essence of their experiences and their world, like it felt like these kinds of conditions are fundamentally punitive, and they don't really change behavior. If the goal of these of these kind of conditions is to change behavior, all they do is make people more secretive, find more creative ways to get around it, and they don't fundamentally deal with the problems at heart, which are that people are feeling desperate or they're feeling despair, and they're looking for ways to relieve themselves of that pain. So at least from my perspective, in China, may think differently, like. I don't see a huge amounts of benefit in this beyond, I don't know, enforcing a kind of sense of a sort of moral superiority on some level. But again, you know, I might be I might be speaking out of
0: time here.
1: No, I think that's right. And I think one of the main points of this article is that if clinicians can understand the reasons why people might be diverting Suboxone or injecting Suboxone, sort of what's going on with that, and can really try to draw people into a dialogue rather than to try to regulate it through punitive measures or other kinds of restrictions, that that could lead to better care by being able to say like, well yeah, I did, I did end up diverting part of my prescription to my mom. And so I was injecting the other part because it allowed me to stretch it out for a longer period of time and have more control over it. That then, you know, instead of having a punitive response to that, to try to draw the mother into care and to try to sort of expand the network of people to whom care is available, may be a better approach. I think one of the things that we also think about a little bit in this paper is the way that the sort of efforts to police and restrict and surveil through pharmaceutical technologies. So moving from a tablet to a sublingual film might also be a site for value generation for pharmaceutical companies who in, in this particular case were able to argue that you know the, the earlier formulation was unsafe or too easily diverted or too easily abused conveniently enough just as it was about to go off patent. And so then the idea of creating sort of pharmaceutical mechanisms for avoiding misuse, whether it's a film or a gel or another kind of substance, um, becomes a way for pharmaceutical companies to keep medications on patent and thus profitable.
0: We always have to follow the money.
1: Follow the money.
0: A central theme of your article is that unlike other drugs, the people you wrote about are not diverting Suboxone to make a profit, they are diverting Suboxone to take care of their family members. How does this balance with the common perception that drug-related activities contribute to the breakdown of family and society?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really um, important thing to call out here. I, I think there is a myth that, as you say, sort of drug use is this sort of purely uh, destructive phenomenon that just tears people's relationships apart. And there's no doubt that there are lots of circumstances where that's, where that's absolutely true. But I think... In this context, drugs and care are so sort of deeply interlaced with one another. And the boundaries of kinship, because of the historical circumstances, of the place are often bound up in the circulation of these substances. And so if you think about families, right, there are always places where, yes, there are tensions and there are fights and there are issues. But also, you know, love and and kinship and, and sort of, you know, deep wells of meaning as people look after each other. And so these substances, they circulate through those channels as well. Um, and I think it sort of should call attention to the fact that you know, it's not—it's it's not like Suboxone is the only substance to ever be bound up in family relations, right? You know, you think about kind of you know, alcohol in American history or you know European history or world history for that matter, right? Has been sort of used to mediate kind of family relationships for better and worse, right? So like, it's there's nothing new in that regard, I don't think.
1: And at the same time, substances can also be deeply damaging in families as well. I don't think we would want to tell a story in which opioid use disorders haven't created problems in families, because that wouldn't be true at all. But that's also true, again, for other substances like alcohol and and whatnot that we think of as legal and even socially normative.
0: One thought that I had while reading your article was that many of the problems could be addressed If the folks in the story just had access to decent jobs with good benefits, what's your thought on that?
1: Yes.
2: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of um, the Rat Park experiments. Are you you familiar with those? No. This is like really, really fascinating. So, like, one of the um, reasons we often conceive of, you know, kind of drugs and opiates in particular being this kind of, I call it like kind of Pringles theory, you know, like once you pop, you can't stop, but once you you take that first hit, you just kind of. You get stuck in these patterns of ever escalating usage. A lot of the grounding for this this concept was basically the nineteen seventies, where you put rats in cages, right? With two options, you give them a, a water bottle and you give them a kind of uh, essentially kind of a, a heroin laced bottle. I think they were using morphine at the time, and basically the rats would go back to the to the um, heroin laced bottle over and over again until they often overdosed and died. And so that be there you go. You have the Pringles it You know, once you pop, you can't stop. And essentially someone came along a guy called bruce alexander who was a psychologist and took a look at this model and said you know what? well what if it's not the chemical what if it's the cage and essentially what he did was he created this thing called rat park and it was kind of like utopia for rats right so it was a big cage lots of space lots of toys lots of places they could go but most importantly other rats you know rats are actually really really social creatures and if you put the same rats in this cage with other rats even if they've been literally born and raised on this kind of uh, morphine solution barely any went back to the um the drug bottle some did but never to the point of overdose right and so this whole point was it's not that it's not the chemical it's the cage right it's the conditions in which people are living so if you put you know rats under those conditions they will you know essentially overdose and die and i think the same is on some level true of people right like if you produce cage like conditions for people to exist in they will seek relief right they will seek some sort of escape from their conditions and things like jobs employment Security, stability, some sense of you know social belonging and possibility and meaning, like will go a huge way to ameliorating the pain that people are ultimately relieving themselves on. I think it's a really instructive study because I think it helps us think about the conditions rather than rather than the substance as the root cause of all evil.
0: Sure, some of the current uh, thought on substance use disorders is comprehensive harm reduction and the thought that, it's not about the addiction versus sobriety. It's about addiction versus connections and making sure that people are connected to their, their community.
1: Absolutely. And I think connected to people who they're also having positive relationships with in different ways. I think, you know, people can have lots of contact with other people, but whether that feels like nurturing and nurturing connection, I think is another important piece of this and thinking about, the complex relationships that can also be flowing through families, particularly in contexts where there has been a great deal of economic scarcity and and precarity over many generations. So I think the solution to this feels more complex the longer that we've thought about it. I think the first step of sort of people having access to good jobs and good housing and meaningful connections within communities Is clearly the first step. And I think, you know, coming back to the earlier question of stigma, um, finding, you know, thinking increasingly about where people might be able to make use of medications like Suboxone and also do that in a way that others in their community can know that they are receiving those medications and receiving that treatment without judging them for that. And sort of how do you crack that nut, I think, is a tricky one in some cases.
0: What recommendations do you have for addressing substance use disorders in Appalachia?
2: You've put a couple of anthropologists on sort of classically uneasy ground in the sort of domain of, of, of policy recommendations.
1: I mean, I do think increasing access to Suboxone and access to other comprehensive harm reduction services like needle exchange are certainly great first steps, but I don't necessarily think that they are the golden solution that's going to solve it all. I think thinking comprehensively about economic development, access to education, access to to jobs, access to other kinds of healthcare, and I think also access to some pretty comprehensive sort of services around therapy and particularly around trauma was a theme that doesn't really come up so much in this particular piece, but is certainly there across a lot of the other work that we've been doing um, as a a major player in what it is that people are seeking to escape from. And so I think any solution that was going to have real effects would need to be able to help people to deal with past and current experiences of traumatic violence.
2: I mean, the other thing that kind of springs to mind um, is this idea of social prescribing, which, you know, when we think about kind of suboxone and prescription this offers a sort of a kind of quite a sort of neat inversion of that right which is this idea that you kind of get primary care professionals to refer people to a kind of range of you know local non-clinical services or community groups that sort of more generally more holistically support health and well-being and I think there is this like incredibly resilient sense of community in these parts and not to mention it's also an incredibly kind of I mean i as an English person, I remember, you know, when I first drove down to Appalachia, just like struck by how incredibly beautiful it is. Uh, as someone, I guess, who like grew up, you know, visiting the Alps, I had i got this similar feeling of just this kind of, you know, incredible topography that was just, you know, kind of radiated this this feeling of of safety. And actually, when you speak to other people in the region, I always found this this uh, this sense of like the mountains offering a kind of safeguarding or safety really kind of ran through. And so, thinking about kind of what kind of sort of community grounded initiatives might be linked up with clinical care as a way to embed that deeper sense of belonging which is already there in many ways right but it's been sort of you know ruptured because of the historical and the sort of economic pain that people have felt like that to me seems like a sort of a ready-made opportunity and thinking about social prescribing could be for me an interesting avenue to explore.
1: One of the other things that we've seen in other sections of this research that aren't really part of this paper, but will be part of future articles and hopefully a book once we get around to finishing it, are sort of thinking about the role of local churches in this process. So one of the things that we've seen, um, certainly not universally and certainly not every time, but that we have come to know a number of people who have moved into recovery from substance use disorders through their engagements with local churches from a variety of different denominations. And getting to know what happens in those spaces has been really fascinating in terms of the kind of Community and the really sort of incredible and often incredibly difficult conversations that people are able to have with one another in those communities, and so um, you know that's been something that's that's been really striking and something that I think the um, you know sort of medical and public health communities, if there's a stigma against suboxone on one side. Um, perhaps coming from those churches, there may also be a stigma on the other side um, in terms of uh, being open to engaging with people in church.
0: So last question, question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? Public transport. Transportation, that's always a good one.
1: Yeah, I think public transportation would be really... Really good. Yeah, and access to jobs, access to housing. I feel like people, some of the people we've come to know through this study, have dealt with really extreme housing precarity that's often left them needing to live in either actually on the streets or um, in various kinds of situations that were not of their choosing and weren't necessarily very good for them. And so thinking about access to housing and particularly access to housing for people who are still actively using substances, but you know, sort of where can they be? So thinking about a kind of housing first approach and, and what that might look like in a rural area, I think is maybe a different, a different matter than it would look like in a, in a city.
0: Well, thank you both of you for joining me today. We very much appreciate your time and the great work that you're doing.
1: Thanks so much, Beth. It's been great talking to you. It's
2: been a pleasure. Thank you very much for for having us.
0: That's China Shears and Joshua Burroway talking about the need for better access to transportation, housing, and jobs to improve health. You can find their article in the show notes. Did you know... Updated COVID vaccines are here for people six months and older to help protect against Omicron. Text your zip code to 438829 or visit vaccines.gov to find updated vaccines near you. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.